Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the world. At that time, I will bring you home at the time when I gather you. This is the word of the Lord. Bible scholars call Zephaniah one of the minor prophets. It doesn't mean that what he has to say is unimportant. It simply means we don't have very much of what he had to say. We have the greater prophets whose work we have much of. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. There are 12 who are called the minor prophets because we have only a snippet of what they had to say. Yet Zephaniah is a very important person in the Hebrew Scriptures. Let me put this into a historical context for you. You recall that after the Israelites were freed from Egyptian slavery, they lived for 200 years as a loose amphictyony of tribal groups. Then they started demanding a king. Samuel pled with them not to have a king, Kings take, he said. They will take your sons, they will take your daughters, they will take your land, they will take everything you have. The people demanded a king, a king they got. And the next 300 years were mostly miserable for the common people. The tribes had separated north and south because after a thousand years... The descendants of ten sons of Jacob still felt they were not as much loved as the other two. Ten sons, not born to favored wife, only two, Benjamin Joseph, born to favored wife of Jacob. Ten against two. The ten were destroyed in 722 before the Common Era. The Assyrian Empire had expanded its own boundaries of what is modern-day Syria to include a part of what is modern-day Iraq and modern-day Lebanon. They swept southward, burning, pillaging, raping, plundering. They destroyed and assimilated the ten northern tribes into their own culture. They ceased to exist as a separate people. Eighty years later, the two southern tribes are still paying tribute to the old Assyrian empire, and they've also adopted the Assyrian gods. Gods of the zodiac, the astrology, also gods of fertility, the Baals. Zephaniah comes into that period of their history, as did Jeremiah. They were contemporaries. And both of them lived during the time that Josiah was king. Dr. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer believes that these two actually had input into the writing of the scroll of Deuteronomy, which was presented to King Josiah as being a work of Moses. It was not, of course. He thought it was, so he took it seriously and attempted meaningful reform. For a dozen years, much good was done. And then the Egyptians, those dreaded archenemies of the Israelites, came marching northward There was a huge battle at Megiddo, and King Josiah was killed by the Egyptians. 
we believe it was just after that death that Zephaniah writes these words today. Let's take a look at what they mean to you and me. Number one for us, I tell you, your judgments have been lifted. Every scholar I read this week said this is definitely courtroom language. It means that Judah has been brought into court. They have been found guilty. And then the judge says, I have set aside your judgment. Last weekend, Don Meredith died. That probably doesn't mean as much to you as it did to me. When I was in junior high school, Don Meredith was an all-state football and basketball player from Mount Vernon High School. Now, when Gail and I go home to see my family at Carthage, Texas, about halfway between Paris and Mount Pleasant, there's a sign, Mount Vernon, just down the road. Don Meredith was a big star athlete when I was in junior high school. He then went on to SMU. While I was in high school, he was three times an All-American quarterback at SMU. And then he played for the Dallas Cowboys. While I was in college and graduate school, he had eight years as the Dallas quarterback. During that time, they went to the playoffs, the final championship game, forerunner today's Super Bowl, against Vince Lombardi's Green Bay Packers. And then Don Meredith retired from football after eight years, and one was one of the first three who began Monday Night Football. The first year, it moved to the very top of the ratings and stayed there the entire season. Don Meredith died. Three things I remember stand out about him. You remember when the game seemed to be out of reach, one team over the other, he would sing Willie Nelson's old song, Turn out the lights, the party's over. They say all good things must end. Second thing I remember, one night shortly before he decided he didn't want to do any more Monday night football, he said to Howard Cosell as they looked down from the booth onto the field, Howard, there's got to be more to life than what's happening down there. And the third thing I remember when Howard and Frank Gifford would be talking about, well, if only this team's quarterback hadn't had a bad knee, if only it hadn't been quite so cold, if only that receiver had not dropped that pass on third and 11, Dandy Don would always say, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas. Think about it. Are you dealing with some if only? If only? But if only? Zephaniah says, God has set aside your judgment. Number two. When I was in seminary, a two-volume commentary on the book of Psalms, was first translated into English. The author was a Scandinavian scholar named Dr. Sigmund Movinkel. He had spent 40 years of an adult lifetime studying the book of Psalms and was convinced 
that the Jews had a very important ten days in the fall of every year he called the Enthronement Festival. In the fall, when the pagans gathered their crops, they had a rip-snorting big party. All they could eat, all they could drink, as much sex as they wanted with as many different people as possible, at the end of which time, in an orgy, they brought in their king of each little tribe on his throne and shouted, Behold our king, he is our God. Sigmund Movinkel was convinced from studying the hymn book of the Jews that at that very season they had Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Not eating, drinking, carousing, but ten days of deep introspection. What harm did I do this year I should not have done? What good might I have done that I didn't get done? Oh God, is there any chance you would move from your seat of judgment to your seat of mercy? And then they would bring in the box that beautiful box that held the tablets of the Ten Commandments and said, Behold our God, He is our King. And that's why we sang about the King of Glory, because here it is in Zephaniah's writing. Last weekend, Elizabeth Edwards also died. I don't want you to think Republican-Democrat for a moment here. I want you to think United Methodist Christian. Elizabeth Edwards was a United Methodist Christian. Her father was a distinguished U.S. Navy pilot during the Korean conflict. So as a young girl, she spent part of her growing up years in Japan. She knew Shintos and Buddhists, but she was a Christian always. She went to college, University of North Carolina, received her Bachelor of Arts degree, was working on a master's when she decided she'd go to law school. She got her degree in Doctor of Jurisprudence, met another young law student named John Edwards, and they were married. In time, she would have four children, two daughters, two sons. The older son killed in a freak automobile accident when he was 16. Her husband became a United States senator, candidate for vice president of the United States, four years later a candidate for president himself, had a widely publicized an affair, fathered a child by another woman. During the 2004 campaign, Elizabeth was found to have breast cancer. And during the 2008 campaign, it was found that it had metastasized beyond what medical science could do. I want to talk about her faith. The person who asked her more questions about her faith than any other I'm aware of was Larry King. He's a Jew. On his program one night, he asked her about faith. And this is what she said. I wished for the intervening God. I wished God had intervened the night my son died. I wished and prayed that God would intervene when I was found to have breast cancer. I prayed that God would have stepped in and intervened when John was being unfaithful to me. But I didn't get that God. The God I got offered me salvation and understanding. 
I'm still praying for understanding, she said. And that God will intervene for you with salvation and understanding. Number three, the Lord, that's the name of the burning bush God, remember, that spoke to Moses. The Lord, your king, is in your midst. He stands with gladness over you. James Adelot emailed me an article this week that was written by his and Robin's former pastor down in Fort Worth, and I liked it very much. He was describing to their congregation in Fort Worth a seminar he had attended at TCU recently. A part of that seminar was a speaker talking about early childhood development. You know, there are very well-educated folks who study babies trying to figure out how much do they know, when do they know it, At what stages is a child capable of doing something new, something bigger, something more significant? And one study showed that one-year-old infants, on average, smile 600 times a day. And the average adult, two and a half. That's what he said. The average one-year-old... 600 times a day, the average adult, two and a half. And his explanation, babies live in the moment. They have no past. They have no future. Not in their little brains. They don't have a past, and they have not developed their brains yet to the point that they can project into the future. That comes about third or fourth grade. They can start to think about abstracts at that point, not before. So they live in the moment. And 600 times a day, they experience something that's wonderful enough, they smile. Adults, they've seen it all. They know the past... They don't particularly like the future, so they're just miserable a good part of the time rather than living in the moment. They think they've seen it all. And this pastor in Fort Worth said, do you remember the story became a play called The Best Christmas Pageant Ever? If you've ever seen it or read it, you'll remember It's a story about a small church getting ready to have the Christmas pageant when suddenly a family shows up named the Herdsmans. Then the author describes them as the worst kids ever. But the point of the story is they have never heard the Christmas story. They've heard about Santa Claus. They haven't heard about Jesus or Mary, or Joseph, or shepherds, or wise men. And so as rehearsals begin, the herdsman kids are hearing the story for the first time. And when it begins, and little Gladys thinks others are not paying enough attention, those who've heard it all their lives, she says, Hey, and to you a son is born. She lived in the moment. She heard it for the first time, and it was wonderful. Number four, 
I will gather you. I will bring you home. Zephaniah anticipated a time when another power would come. It did, the Babylonians. And the southern tribes would be carried away as had the northerners been. Would they too be assimilated? Would they too cease to exist as a separate people? Would they be a separate, holy people set apart for the purposes of God? God will bring you home. You ever notice how prominently the word home is featured in our songs? I was working on this sermon all week. I turned on a radio I have in my office that Gail gave me some years ago and turned to a station that's just doing Christmas music now all the way. And I started listening for the word home or references to home. Bing Crosby sings, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. It became popular in 1942 when we had thousands upon thousands of young men fighting in Europe and in the Pacific who weren't going to get to come home. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas just like the ones I used to know where treetops glisten and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas with every Christmas card I write. May your days be merry and bright and may all your Christmases be white. Frank Sinatra sings, I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan on me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents on the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. Ah, Kenny Loggins. I gathered from the words of this one that he's maybe in a bar somewhere. And he's listening to songs, and he's begging somebody to teach him a song that he can sing when he wishes he were home. See if that's what you get. Home for the holidays, I believe I've missed each and every face. Come on and play one easy. Let's turn on every love light in this place. Please celebrate me home. Give me a number, please. Celebrate me home. Play me one more song that I'll always remember that I can recall whenever I find myself all too alone so I can sing me home. Or the eagles. Bells will be ringing this sad, sad New Year's. Oh, what a Christmas to have the blues. But this is Christmas. Yes, Christmas, my dear. The time of year to be with the ones you love. So won't you tell me you'll never more roam. Christmas and New Year's will find you home. There'll be no more sorrow, no grief and pain. And I'll be happy, happy once again. Please come home for Christmas. Please come home for Christmas. The other morning I was shaving, had the little television behind me projected into the mirror where I could see it. Folgers Coffee had a commercial. They have one similar to this all every year, but this one was a little bit different from the ones I'd seen before. Young woman looks like maybe college age is making a fresh pot of coffee. There's a rustle at the door. She opens the door. I think it's her brother about the same age. He comes through the door and throws his arms around her. She hugs him as well. And he says, oh, coffee. And she pours him a cup. And as he starts to drink, she said, you know, they waited up all night for you. 
He said, look what I brought you. And he handed her a little box. She took the ribbon off and stuck it on his chest. And he said, hey, what are you doing? And she said, this year, you're my Christmas present. Do you feel God sticking that bow on your chest? <laughs>